You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. So we're very happy to have uh, Mark Wartman here who wrote the book uh, Fighting the Shadow War, 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, amongst a number of other great books. And his well-reviewed book um, is the subject of our interview today. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ralph. So I'm very pleased to um, discuss this uh, area with you. It's kind of um, most people, as you say in your book and as acknowledged, I think World War II started with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And, of course, as your book is a subject of it, it's more complicated. It started long before that. I guess you could make an argument that the U.S. involvement sort of started with the attack on the USS Panay in China by the Japanese in, in the 1930s. Would that be a fair marker, Mark, to say the start of the war for us? I, I, think, I think you can definitely see it that way. Uh, that was all the way back in, in December of 1937, which is uh, a pretty amazing thing if you think about it, that, that it would be another four years until the U.S. got into the war. But uh, already the, the war was going on in China, uh, and the Japanese were trying to push all the foreigners out of what they considered to be their uh, hemisphere of interest. And so they uh, attacked the Panay, uh, which was a U.S. warboat uh, on the uh, uh, the Yangtze River, uh, in, in a way that was remarkably brazen and uh, uh, presaged the attack on Pearl Harbor in many ways. Uh, four years later, and uh, and of course, even you know, a few years later, once the uh, the war had broken out in Europe uh, in September 1939, the U.S. was also very actively involved in in many different ways in that conflict. It's sort of interesting, uh, obviously, your, your book, and, and that you, you sort of tell the story of the European conflict through two different people, Philip Johnson, the well-known architect, who actually used to live in my building, and William uh, L. Shire, um, the distinguished CBS... He was, was it CBS? Was he a journalist for? He later wrote the book Inside the Third Reich. But he, he yep. travels with uh, German forces to Poland, as does Johnson. They both come with different views. But um, that's sort of like the precursor of um, at least uh, Shira's reporting of America's becoming sort of familiar with what Hitler was doing. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I was uh, really surprised to discover that uh, Philip Johnson... Uh, who was uh, who had uh, very strong uh, pro-Nazi sympathies, um, and in some uh, uh, and there was some possibility that he may have even been a German agent uh, who, in the U.S., was very actively campaigning on on behalf half of the Nazis. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, he spent a great deal of time in Europe, uh, in Germany. Uh, despite his uh, love for 
modern art and architecture, despite his uh, personal homosexuality, very active homosexuality, uh, both of which were uh, obviously uh, banned by the Nazis, um, he, he became very pro-fascist. Uh, and he reported from Europe for uh, a publication that was put out by Father Charles Coughlin, who was a radio uh, preach, uh, preacher, a, a, Catholic, a Roman Catholic minister, who was uh, decidedly uh, pro-Nazi. And uh, he had a, a newspaper in the United States called Social Justice, and Philip Johnson contributed a number of pieces to it uh, from Europe, uh, right. very pro-German. Uh, so I thought this was an amazing contrast that William Shire, who eventually became so strongly identified with uh, the anti-Nazi press and came back to the U.S. to campaign uh, to warn the Americans, a kind of Paul Revere campaign to warn the Americans about the danger that Hitler presented, that these two were thrown together shortly after the invasion of Poland on a... Uh, they were embedded with the German army by the uh, German propaganda ministry and forced to room together, and they went to the front in Poland and observed the war up close there uh, together. I just thought that was an amazing uh, sort of uh, contrast of two people, uh, and that would give me a way to present sort of the poles of views about Nazi Germany that were present in the United States in uh, during the following year, when they each came back to the U.S., uh, one to campaign and speak on behalf of the Nazis, and the other uh, to uh, warn Americans about the danger that Hitler represented to the nation. And I, I believe that Roosevelt thought that Father Coughlin was one of the most dangerous people, if not the most dangerous person, he called him in the United States. And, of course, you mentioned Charles Lindbergh and the American First Movement, um, which, I, which I don't think Trump understood what he was doing when he, when he called himself um, America First as well, that it really related to Lindbergh. And how anti-Semitic you saw that Lindbergh was, that the feelings were maybe not just anti-war, but they were just really, in a way, pro-Nazi because it was tremendous anti-Semitism. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I spent a great deal of time uh, at the Yale Archives going through the originals of Charles Lindbergh's uh, personal notebooks, personal journals that he kept. Uh, he uh, was very meticulous about uh, making entries every day in these small black notebooks in his very careful hand about his doings uh, both as... Um, you know, in public life, and his personal thoughts about what was going on. Um, and there, there uh, throughout, there are uh, really obsessive sorts of comments about the role of Jews in American society. Um, and uh, I've found that almost all of those comments were expurgated from the published versions of his journals um, that were uh, were released uh, in later years, uh, and what you see is that that Lindbergh, who uh, only in September of 1941 specifically identified Jews as uh, as a group pressuring the United States, um, which he can uh, uh, which he considered them not really to be fully part of, um, pressuring the United States to get into a war against its will. 
And what you see in these journals is many on many different occasions he, he accuses Jews of sabotaging his events, uh, doing things like turning off the ventilation system at a, an arena where he was speaking, uh, putting uh, using um, their power, their supposed power, which was actually entirely a myth, uh, except in Hollywood, their supposed power over the media to uh, associate him uh, more closely with the Nazis um, and uh, and various other occasions where he saw them acting as a sort of subterranean force uh, in uh, dragging an unwilling American people into the war. Yeah, it, it's really it's uh, really crazy when you when you, when you think about it that he was able to believe that. Could you explain, Mark, what the neutrality acts were? Sure. So the United States in the uh, post World War One period uh, returned to its long-standing policy of not getting involved in foreign entanglements as. Uh, uh, they were known by, uh, as George Washington had uh, condemned them, uh, and to uh, to maintain a neutral status uh, around uh, the entire world uh, in any foreign conflict. Uh, basically, uh, the U.S. was uh, a great power, and yet it was the equivalent of Switzerland in terms of its attitude towards conflicts going on anywhere else in the world. And in the mid-1930s, a series of laws were enacted, known collectively as the Neutrality Acts, which forbade the U.S. from from providing aid to any warring nation, to sending American ships into the ports of warring nations, uh, and uh, uh, sending, uh, convoying, that is uh, providing naval protection for uh, uh, any goods being shipped to warring nations, uh, and also forbid uh, aiding uh, foreign nations who uh, who sought uh, assistance in American ports and harbors. In other words, uh, if a ship, a foreign ship, was was attacked, it couldn't come. Legally, it could not come into the, an American port for protection. And, uh, and, so and basically, all of this was designed uh, specifically to keep the U.S. from getting involved in any foreign wars. Congress shackled the president's hands. And interestingly, FDR signed those laws because he understood sort of the state of the American mind that said, uh, we will remain isolated from uh, foreign entanglements and foreign wars. Uh, but of course, what that effectively did was gave power to aggressor nations uh, to attack our allies because we couldn't come to the aid of our allies, uh, our allies, even if they are, or I should say, our friends, because we had no formal alliances. And- but we understood, you know, the British were our closest friends. The French were our closest friends. We had fought alongside them during World War I, but when they were attacked, we could not formally, officially aid them. 
and and sort of yep. and sort of concurrent with that, we also, and as your book brings out as well, we had an unbelievably uh, badly armed military. We had a very weak army. We had a very we had we were undersupplied. It was almost the opposite of Reagan's peace through strength. It was like peace through weakness. And if we somehow remain woefully unprepared, it will somehow deter war. Which, of course, was the opposite of what ended up happening when we had to get involved. We were we were unprepared, and it hurt us in helping the British because we needed that for ourselves to a degree for our own defense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, Robert Lovett, who uh, was the Secretary of Defense during the Korean War uh, and uh, involved in a number of different high government posts, uh, both during World War II and afterward, um, when he was Secretary of Defense, um, he, he said of the idea uh, that, uh, that we had tried weakness and seen that it didn't work, and so we need to pursue strength as a way to uh, uh, maintain peace. And and that's it. Really, was the case that during the period, the interwar period, uh, there were many noble uh, ideas about disarming that a number of uh, all of the world's great powers were involved with. There were uh, disarmament conferences, and the United States was, uh, was a, a participant in those, in those conferences and agreed to reduce its armaments, as did uh, the British, uh, the Germans, the Japanese. But of course, uh, when you uh, hold your word, you, uh, you maintain a treaty, if the other side breaks a treaty and you continue to uh, to honor the treaty, uh, you put yourself in a precarious state. And the Germans and the Japanese both uh, abrogated the treaties and began to build up their forces, and the British and the Americans did not respond in kind. You know, and so uh, the, the, the price was eventually a uh, very heavily armed nations in Japan and Germany who became... Uh, who uh, the United States uh, had in uh, uh, 1940 had uh, far fewer than uh, uh, had in fact about a quarter million men in its army counting reserves and uh, the equipment for about 500,000 men. That's and, and the Germans were uh, in some cases losing that many uh, forces. Uh, eventually in their war in, in, uh, on the Eastern Front with the Soviet Union. So, you know, when you think about the, uh, in, in just a single battle, the Germans could lose that many men. Uh, and if we lost that many people in one battle, we would effectively have no defense forces at and, all. Yeah, one of the things, of course, FDR was one of the most craftiest, most intelligent politicians, and just intelligent in general, people we probably ever had to be in the presidency. And, of course, in the 1930s, he tried to pack the Supreme Court, which the Senate said no to, and that was probably a good thing. But in this case, he works to sort of undermine the intent, or at least the spirit of the law, by doing things like the neutrality patrols and lend-lease. He says, if your neighbor's house is on fire, you you will want to get, lend them a garden hose, and you want the garden hose back. Could you just talk about some of the crafty things that Roosevelt did to sort of involve the U.S., but in a ways that would not, you know, blatantly violating the law? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, when we when you use the word classy for him, there are a lot of a lot of people at the time who would have said he was duplicitous and uh, 
and uh, unconstitutional. Um, but uh, and and you know you cited the Supreme Court packing attempt that was you know that was certainly pushing the envelope of of presidential power and uh, eventually he was rebuffed for it and uh, there were uh, very powerful forces in Congress that were pushing back against him and who considered him to be a warmonger and uh, anti democratic. You know, there were those in Congress, uh, uh, Robert Taft, the leader of the Republicans and a later presidential candidate, who uh, said that, the, that the, the greatest danger that the United States faced wasn't the Nazis, it was the White House. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so he, he faced tremendous opposition, but he was absolutely convinced that sh- uh, that should Western Europe fall, which it eventually did, and should Great Britain fall, we would be alone in fighting against Hitler, and that uh, Hitler would have the combined forces of Europe, uh, Great Britain, and eventually the Soviet Union uh, to take on the Western Hemisphere, and that uh, the U.S., would have to fight alone against a power that it could not possibly win against, especially uh, it, once the tripartite pact was passed and Japan and Germany were allied uh, as uh, as warring partners. Uh, so he believed that the U.S. Uh, needed to keep Great Britain in the fight as our front line. Uh, this, this was... Uh, uh, in the war, that this was keeping the war away from the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but how to do it when when your hands are shackled by the Neutrality Act? So he began a series of efforts uh, that uh, he uh, that he even as early as uh, the late 1930s uh, he determined. Uh, uh, short of war, uh, that he described as short of war and an undeclared war, um, and that he said, I have a constitutional duty to defend the national interests of the United States, uh, uh, even uh, and doing things that are not, that are other than war. Um, but of course, what is other than war? And that's, uh, that was the big question. So he he uh, tr- uh, uh, traded desperately needed the, the the destroyers that the bridge desperately needed uh, in their Atlantic Sea War with the U-boats uh, for um, for basing rights in various places uh, Bermuda uh, in the Caribbean uh, and in um, uh, Newfoundland Canada for American ships. Uh, and he began also to set up what you you uh, the neutrality patrol that you spoke it's, of. It's a great uh, name, neutrality patrol, and essentially it's it's almost an offensive anti-German patrol. But but calling it a neutral patrol sounds mm-hmm. much better than, than than really what it was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of those uh, uh, one of those great terms that uh, means precisely the opposite of what <laughs> of right. what it was. Um, this was, uh, in my book, there's a map at the uh, beginning of the book where it uh, lays out 
over time in the Atlantic Ocean how uh, the American Navy progressively extended out this neutrality patrol. And it stepped out first, you know, uh, at the start of the war, uh, there was a three-mile territorial limit uh, and th- that um, was controlled by, uh, by nations, by international treaty. Uh, the U.S., working with uh, South American countries, declared that no uh, warship could enter within 200 miles of U.S. territory uh, immediately after the start of the war. Well, um, then the United States pushed that out to um, uh, eventually to a thousand miles off the United States coast that it declared this is uh, this is a range where the United States will be patrolling and that uh, foreign warships cannot enter into this zone. And that extended from the tip of Greenland all the way down through Bermuda and uh, over the uh, shoulder of South America. And Mark, can I just uh, take you to another incident which you mentioned, which is the USS Greer, which is sort of during these patrols, the, the Greer, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the Iraq war was sort of, we went to war on faulty intelligence that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. If you think about the Gulf of Tonkin, a lot of people think that attack there's argument as to whether or not it occurred in 64, which, of course, really ramped us up in Vietnam. And, of course, here we are helping a British um, plane try to sink a German U-boat. The German U-boat fires on the USS Greer, uh, and then Roosevelt comes on to basically an outrage. And he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't fully disclose that we were trying to help uh, the um, the British uh, plane. He just lends the fact that we were just unjustly fired upon. So, in a way, we were sort of uh, marched to war on, on a bit of a lie, even though it was for a very good cause and obviously was was the right thing to do. It's kind of interesting that people don't really focus on that aspect, of which of course your book brings out too. Sure, sure, yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you pointed out the the Greer incident, uh, uh, which took place in. Uh, um, uh, September in in uh, uh, 
uh, Iceland much earlier um, uh, because it was really the turntable of the North Atlantic uh, convoy system. And the U-boats were coming down from, from the North Sea uh, through uh, the, the, stra- uh, the Greenland Straits or um, uh, in, into the North Atlantic to attack the convoys. And the, uh, the British, fearing that the Germans would, would occupy Iceland, took it over themselves, and then the U.S., to aid the British, uh, relieved their forces that were in Iceland and took over Iceland uh, and began uh, officially as part of its uh, self-protecting duty, uh, 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 patrolling 200 miles to uh, to the east from Iceland. So effectively, we were within a few hundred miles of Great Britain uh, with our naval patrols uh, when we were uh, officially a neutral party in the war. Right, and could I also just ask you about the Pacific Theater? Because we just, we spoke about this briefly on the phone as well. Some people said, and there's a book called Day of Deceit out, that, that, that FDR supposedly knew about the Pearl Harbor attack. Of course, there's no evidence of that at all. There was some... In the book, it said there was some transmission that the fleet uh, let out that when it was attacking or going on the attack to Hawaii. But but I think most people think there was so much intelligence that it was just lost in, in the avalanche of what people had to analyze at the time. And later on, it was seen as obviously important, but but not at the time. But you were saying to me that, that the plan was to station forces, airplanes right on Midway as a deterrent to the Japanese. And that Roosevelt in no way was prepared for a two-front war, and, and we really wanted to focus on uh, Germany. It was not our intent to sort of stumble into uh, the war with Japan. I, I also just briefly told you, I think, that I, I had the opportunity to speak to George Kennan, who was a later, um, who was so prescient in the breakup of the Soviet Union, who, who, who even, when I spoke to him in the late 80s, he was angry at the fact that he thought Roosevelt had gotten us into war with Japan with the oil embargo and that we should have focused on uh, Germany. But th- I assume that's just not your view. I assume you, you don't think that Roosevelt was responsible for uh, getting us into the war with Japan, I, I assume. Well, you know, it, it depends on... Uh, I do not believe... Uh, that that any of the evidence stands up to close scrutiny that FDR in any way was aware of uh, the attack coming against Pearl Harbor. What he was certainly aware that Japanese forces were on the move, uh, that part of the Japanese fleet uh, was had disappeared from view, but that the uh, all of the intelligence that was getting into the White House was uh, pointed toward uh, what actually did happen as well, which was the movement of Japanese forces to the south uh, into the Malay Peninsula, peninsula uh, and, uh, and deeper into uh, uh, Indochina. Uh, the, but at the same time, Roosevelt was engaged, as he was in the Atlantic, in uh, beefing up uh, both overtly and covertly American forces in the region. But in contrast to what he was doing in the Atlantic, uh, FDR's policy was expressly designed to hold off war in the Pacific as long as possible. You know, at the, by the end of November, uh, basically a countdown was happening, and FDR was still continuing uh, in good faith to engage in 
uh, in diplomacy in the hopes of creating of of uh, uh, establishing what he called a modus of uh, vivendi uh, that would basically be a standstill. He was uh, he was even willing at that point not to demand a rollback of Japanese forces uh, occupying large sections of China, uh, even though eventually he was fully intent on pushing the Japanese out. But uh, we have to understand that the U.S. forces were stretched so thin, and uh, FDR understood better than uh, almost anybody in uh, the world at that time how much uh, the global perspective mattered and that it was a global war and that any time he put forces into one theater, he had to take them away from another. It was still a zero-sum situation for American, uh, for American forces. We were s- still in the process of ramping up uh, production of bombers, uh, productions of, of warships, uh, and, you know, as... Uh, uh, the uh, admirals and fleet said, uh, we don't have enough butter for our bread. And Mark, and, and, and you mentioned to me the plan was to station uh, U.S. fighter planes in Midway. Is that correct? Uh. Yeah. Uh, the plan, well, uh, the U.S. had uh, was had its first, uh, the first of a new generation of flying fortresses coming off the assembly lines, and they, the first ones were all designated to go to uh, the uh, go out to Midway, uh, where they would be close enough to directly threaten Japan with retaliation. Uh, and the basic uh, am, uh, ambition and the belief was that if these uh, bomber forces, uh, and there were also uh, fighters uh, that were being sent there, uh, could be uh, could be stationed there, that the Japanese wouldn't dare. Uh, to uh, attack further, because the U.S. had made it clear that then there would be uh, retaliation. And Japan, for the first time, faced the possibility that the war uh, that had been going on in China uh, and their occupation of, uh, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, that, th- uh, that there would be a cost, a direct cost, at home for, uh, with uh, the threat of bombers. Um, you know, and the U.S. had, uh, uh, General Marshall had ordered a study of the situation of Hawaii and the defenses there in early 1941. And uh, 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 the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, assured the president that uh, Hawaii was the, what he called the strongest fortress in the world. Uh, that there was absolutely no chance that attackers would get through. Uh, so Roosevelt thought that he had a strategy in the Pacific that uh, was both designed to diplomatically stave off war for as long as possible and then to create a forward, uh, a forward force that could attack Japan uh, as retaliation for anything, any further aggression by the Japanese. And eventually, uh, once Germany was defeated, the intention was 
uh, to force Japan back. So you don't you don't a, fold Roosevelt that mark for the oil embargo. You don't think it provoked Japan. You don't think that was an incorrect policy. I think also your book brings out didn't we move the Pacific Fleet from California to Hawaii, to Hawaii? Was it or the yeah. Pacific Fleet? Yeah. Uh, so that took place in in. 1940. Uh, that was all part of this strategy to basically forward base American forces as much as possible to threaten Japan with retaliation, uh, with the uh, you know the basic notion that uh, Japan should fear American responses. I mean, we have seen this many men in many many instances uh, in in the years since World War II. Uh, with the basic idea that uh, uh, if provoked, we can respond massively. And uh, the U.S. had a limited uh, capability at that time, but we still had a very substantial uh, Pacific fleet. We had three carriers, uh, eight battleships, uh, and and many uh, destroyers and ancillary vessels. Um, but uh, and Roosevelt by no means would leave them as sitting ducks in uh, Pearl Harbor for attack by the uh, Japanese. You know anybody who would who would even remotely think that a possibility is is uh, smoking way too much stuff. <laughs> Mark, when you look uh, back when you look back at Roosevelt's actions in the 1930s, like I think for example he didn't come out in favor of an anti-lynching bill because it was just. It was too difficult with the Southern senators. So obviously he, had, he was, of course, a politician as well as a moral person. He had to balance both of those out. When you look at his policies, do you think he went about as far as could be done to uh, go against Germany and without uh, totally, you know, about as far as he could, given the limits he faced? You know, I'm of, I'm of two minds, and I don't, you know, I've never sat in the White House <laughs> facing uh, – facing both uh, domestic opposition and uh, a major international crisis. Uh, but uh, Henry Stimson, uh, his secretary of war, um, who had served in, he was a Republican, he'd served in uh, White Houses going back to the Woodrow Wilson, I mean to the um, uh, William Howard Taft White House. Uh, he'd served President Hoover. Uh, he was, he was, uh, uh, and then Roosevelt brought him into his White House as Secretary of War as a kind of, um, uh, uh, as part of an anti-partisan move to say that American interests uh, went beyond partisanship. It was a very different time, of course. Um, he, he was a firm believer that executive leadership counted and that Roosevelt could push the American people much farther than they seemed ready to go, and that they would follow him if he led. And Roosevelt was kind of a, ham, a Hamlet figure in this period. He really vacillated between uh, very aggressive statements and some actions that could be seen as highly pro- uh, provocative, you know, above all this neutrality pro- patrol, uh, but also, you know, he was sending American, uh, the uh, what eventually became known as the Flying Tigers, but this was a, a, a secret fighter force that was being sent 
into China to fight uh, the Japanese and that he expected to take on the Japanese as a sort of clandestine American force. So he was doing certain things were, that were extremely aggressive and constitutionally dubious. Right. Um, you know, and yet uh, at the same time, he was not ready to go to war because he didn't believe the American people were willing. Right. He didn't want to get too far ahead. Could I just ask you too about another thing your book brings interesting is think of the CIA today and then we also think of the OSS, the Organization of Strategic Services, which existed after Pearl Harbor. But at the time period your book focuses on, we really didn't have much of an intelligent, of essential intelligence service at all. And we sort of outsourced that to a degree to the British who had some experience dealing with German spies. And I think they had, they had turned the whole German network in uh, England against Germany. And your book also talks about that in operations in South America, which was also interesting because I didn't realize how badly prepared we were on that front as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's a, kind of an amazing thing uh, what happened uh, as a result of World War II, because, you know, of course, now we think of the United States as uh, an internationalist nation uh, involved in organizations such as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, uh, with forward forces stationed around the world, uh, by far the largest military force uh, in the world, and even uh, now uh, under Trump, in which many of these um, uh, these alliances that were established during the, uh, uh, as a result of uh, the post-World War II and Cold War era, uh, many of these are under attack, they continue to be very much central uh, to the world. But, of course, before uh, World War II, uh, we, you know, we didn't have that kind of power, and we didn't have really any kind of foreign intelligence service at all. Uh, we uh, and the British uh, were really the masters at it. They had established uh, really superior intelligence services during the First World War, and uh, they uh, perfected them in many ways. Uh, MI6 during the uh, Second World War, they had a number of special operations, uh, and they set up uh, in. New York City in Rockefeller Center in the International Building North. You can still see it. Uh, it's still there on Fifth Avenue on the 36th floor. They created uh, an office under uh, a shadowy figure named Sir William Stevenson, Stephenson, who uh, uh, Churchill personally sent to the U.S. to establish a Western Hemisphere foreign uh, uh, intelligence operation, uh, including... Uh, dark operations uh, that involved uh, forgery, wiretapping, theft of documents, uh, and apparently also killing of foreign agents, uh, German agents in the United States, and also um, uh, white operations, propaganda operations, uh, participation in American political uh, elections and campaigns, uh, to try and convince Americans to support the British. You know, their operatives included uh, Raoul Dahl, the famous uh, children's book author um, who came to the U.S., um, and uh, perhaps most famously Ian Fleming, who um, uh, some say modeled his uh, James Bond character on their various models that have been presented out there, but one of them is Sir William Stevenson, uh, who was a Canadian who'd 
uh, become extremely wealthy in the post. Uh, he was a World War I uh, fighter pilot, uh, and then he became very wealthy in the post-war years. He was an inventor, and right? Then, right what you mark, I mean, he invented some sort of complicated electronics thing that I forgot what it was, was some sort of device that made him very famous as well, as well as hardware stores in Canada. Yeah, yeah. He um, he created something that was basically the equivalent of the fax machine right. um, and um, uh, for transmitting documents. Um, and he uh, and he also he owned a film studio. He was very close to a number of the uh, famous film actors and and um, and producers and directors in the period. And very wealthy. He he had got an apartment on Central Park and ran this this operation uh, that grew to have something like uh, an estimated three thousand agents scattered around the Western Hemisphere uh, and. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller, you mentioned the uh, situation in South America. Nelson Rockefeller modeled a uh, an office uh, that was designed to ferret out uh, Nazi uh, business uh, operatives in South America. The the Germany needed a number of uh, rare earth metals that were uh, they were importing. Uh, from South America, as well as petroleum uh, and rubber. And um, uh, Rockefeller, uh, working with Sir William Stephenson, uh, was able to shut down uh, those, uh, those German operations there. Much The Nazis were going crazy about that. Uh, and there were uh, Sir William Stephenson's operation, which was known as British Security Coordination, uh, forged documents that were p- passed to the White House. Uh, FDR charged, uh, had FD, uh, set up J. Edgar Hoover as his liaison with British Security Coordination uh, so he could have some kind of arm's length relationship, uh, much to the chagrin of people in the State Department who thought this was entirely illegal and unconstitutional <laughs> to have a foreign uh, spy service operating on the U.S. soil. Um, and uh, there were documents that came to the White House that the, were forged that uh, claimed that there was a plot ongoing in Bolivia by Nazis there uh, with the support of business people with German affiliation uh, to bring down the government. So the, the government of Bolivia arrested them all and had many of them shot. You know, um, That's... Uh, so, you know, there were these amazing cloak and dagger uh, kind of film noir things going on all around the Western Hemisphere. Um, there were uh, a number of business people who had uh, who continued to uh, engage with the, the Germans. And again, uh, 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 the British security coordination working with their friends in the press outed them, and several of them were f- uh, forced to resign uh, from their companies. Uh, German uh, business agents in America were hounded out of the country. Uh, so um, all of this, again, part of this shadow war that uh, uh, FDR was engaged in um, well, well before. Well, Mark, I, I'm running out of time, but I just wanted to say thank you. so much. Could you please mention your website, too, if people want to see what other books you've written and learn more about you? Sure. Uh, so they can find uh, more information about me both on Facebook and on the Internet at markwortmanbooks.com. 
dot com mark workman books m a r c w o r t m a n books mark workman books great well, Mark, um, thank you so much. We just sort of scratched the surface here. You have so so many interesting things. Obviously, people can learn more about it by going to your book, um, The Shadow War, 1941, The Shadow War. And thank you so much for your time and for coming on. And I wish you a, a great rest of the day. And thank you. Okay, Ralph. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, hopefully we can speak again in the future. I look forward to it. Thank you, Mark. Good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galito's also has a private banquet room for social events 